How's everyone doing this morning? All right. I'm ready to go. I drank some tea this morning. We've got an extra hour of sunshine now. We just sang some awesome songs. Thank you, Ben and Will, uh, for leading. I love hearing Will drum. It's just, uh, I don't know. I don't feel like you guys are sharing the same little excitement that I am this morning. So, <laughs> Open your Bible, if you have one, to Judges chapter 17. The passage that was just read aloud to us from our friend and sister Kelly. If you don't own a Bible, know that there's some provided for you on the bar in the room off to my left here. We're continuing a study through the book of Judges, looking at our great need for a Savior. All throughout the book of Judges so far, we've come and seen the downward spiral of the people of Israel throughout the book of Judges. And by coming to Judges 17, we have now entered the third and final section of Judges. Judges began in, verse, in chapter 1 through chapter 3, verse 6, telling us and kind of giving us a summary of what's going to happen in the book. It recorded the death of Joshua and how after the death of Joshua, the people of Israel did not complete the conquest of the land. And not only did they not complete the conquest, but they started worshiping the, the gods of the surrounding nations. And Judges, in the beginning, introduces us to this cycle that we see throughout the book that the people turn away from God, they rebel, they do what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He sends enemies to oppress them. From this point of oppression, they cry out to God. God raises up a judge. They save, they deliver the people from the oppressors, and then the cycle continues again. And all the way through, Judges uh, 3, 6 through 16, 31, those chapters 3 through 16, Judges has introduced us to 12 judges that we see throughout this period who the Lord raises up, who deliver the people of Israel from the hand of their oppressors, and in Samson's case, begin to deliver the people. But Judges 17 through 21, the last section of, that, of the book, record what life was like during the period of the Judges for kind of the everyday person. What kind of uh, spiritual condition was with the people in this time? So it's not going to cover a particular judge, there's not really even a particular mention or many mentions to the Lord. And as we read chapter 17 and 18 and 19 and 20 and 21, you'll see why. Right? This is very dark and disturbing. It's not for the faint of heart as you read through Judges, particularly as we get to the end. But Judges 17 introduces us to this time phrase, and there's a key, repeated phrase that's throughout this, these chapters. Uh, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And this shows the great need that God's people have for his grace and who will send a king, a deliverer, to rescue them from their condition. It also is showing us throughout the period of Judges that although leaders like Gideon had led the people to idolatry in the past, the people of Israel don't need a bad ruler to lead them into idolatry. They will do it themselves. That's what Judges 17 through 21 will show us. So the plan this morning is to walk briefly through the passage, talk about any kind of historical cultural elements that are necessary for us to glean the original meaning, and then begin to answer those series of questions that we've tried to answer each week, getting us to see what can we learn about the character of God from this story? How does this story in particular connect with the larger story of the Bible, and what is this passage calling us to do or not do? What warning or exhortation does it have for us? You guys ready to go there with me? Okay. Judges 17, 1, uh, opens by describing a man named Micah. 
there was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse, and also spoke it in my ears. Behold, the silver is with me. I took it. The story opens with a similar number that we saw earlier, uh, last chapter, with Samson, 1,100 pieces of silver. It was an interesting number that's repeated from last week. And to remind you, this is not a small uh, amount of money. This is not $20 out of the piggy bank. This, is 20, this would be about 28 pounds of silver. This is a huge amount of money. And the son steals it from his, his mom for whatever reason, it might have been because he heard, overheard the curse being uttered. He comes back to his mom and he says, Mom, I took your money. Here it is. And really, in kind of a forgiving, almost too forgiving way, the mom just goes at the end of verse 2, Blessed be my son by the Lord. Now, I would think you'd have maybe a little different reaction if your child stole this much money from you, right? Is there any kind of correction here? Any kind of discipline? Uh, seems like she's way too forgiving. Simple confession of the stealing, and she blesses him. She reverses the curse. Blessed be my son by the Lord. And, and there's no mention here uh, that that Lord would be the orthodox covenant name of the Lord. As you see there, it's in all caps. It's the, how they would symbolize Yahweh. So it seems like Micah's mom here is a worshiper of Yahweh. There's no mention of the Baals or the Ashtaroth or the other Canaanite gods, Dagon. But notice in verse 3 what happens. He restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother, and his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. Now, two things to me stand out here. Number one, although the mother seems orthodox, and even she gives her son an orthodox name, Micah means who is like the Lord. She does a blatant, disregard and rebellion to the second commandment, right? Don't make an image. Make a carved image, an idol. This is the second commandment that the Lord gave to Moses after he rescued his people from slavery from the Egyptians. The list of commands are found in Exodus 20. And Exodus 24 describes the second commandment, which says, you shall not make for yourself the carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the waters under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. And this is an important command because since God is the all-powerful creator, nothing fully reflects the fullness or robustness of his character. No created thing can do that. Nothing can fully express the glory of God. Anything that, that we or you and I or anyone creates will simply be a form of God, a, a, an idea of God that, that might be based on our thoughts, our mind, our wishes, because every form that we see is, is a created thing, everything that God made. It'd be similar to if you were to look at my, if you were to not know me and you were to look at my daughter Addison, you could get a glimpse of, of maybe who I might be, right? There's some f facial features that I have that Addison reflects, right? She's made in, in my image and the image of my wife. There's some personality things that I also share with her. But it would be hard for you to, if you only knew Addison, to know who I was, right? And of course, every illustration or analogy of God will break down because I'm not the only one who created Addison. 
me and my wife did. Right, and it's only God who creates, but we can't look at created things and, and we can get a glimpse or an idea of who God is, but nothing can fully express who God is. Right? Even if we, in, in paintings or pictures, we might portray God as, as loving and kind, but that's only part of who God is. He's also wrathful and just and, and angry. So this idea that she dedicates this silver to the Lord and then right away makes an image shows how much the surrounding nations had infiltrated her worship of God. This shows the great influence from the surrounding pagan nations that had been mixed with the Israelites' worshipped. And all throughout the Old Testament, we see that God's people are often tempted to worship God, not in the way that he commanded them, but in the way of the surrounding nations, in a way that seems right according to their preferences or, or their desires. And, and this may indicate why Micah might have returned the money, because if he was influenced by this pagan culture, he might have had a fear of bad mojo, a bad curse, like something bad was going to happen. And that's the real reason why he returned the silver, not because he was convicted that he broke God's law of stealing and dishonoring his father and mother. But notice also that the mother says she's going to dedicate the Lord. And in verse 4, she says, When he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith, silversmith, who made it into a carved image and a metal image, and it was in the house of Micah. So, 1,100 pieces of silver. She says, I'm going to dedicate this to the Lord. Immediately makes an image, or has it made an image made. Bad. But then she doesn't even take all of the money that she said she was going to dedicate, 1,100 pieces. She gives 200 pieces. She's not giving God everything, right? There are a couple of bad things that are happening here. Out of the 28 pounds, about the 28 pounds of these 1,100 pieces of silver, she only gave about five pounds. Right? Isn't, isn't this often what we do with God too? God, here's, I'll give you, here it is. But let me keep this percentage for myself and only give you the, the little bit. The story gets worse as Micah makes a shrine, or the literal phrase there is a house of gods. In verse 5, the man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and household gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. Now, Micah does three things wrong here. Number one, he makes a house of God, a sanctuary. There was only one place that was dedicated where the Lord was to be worshipped. There was one sanctuary, and this was already created and made and dedicated. He was not supposed to make this special place of, of worship for himself. Two, he makes an ephod. Now, this was a special garment that was worn by the priest, and more specifically, the high priest. Wasn't supposed to do that either. And third, he ordains his own priesthood. Right? God had already established and commanded that the Levites were to serve as his priests. And you couldn't just go and ordain anyone that you wanted to serve as your own priesthood. He's, he's making his own priesthood, a, a false priesthood. So in disregard to and rebellion to God's laws, he sets up his own sanctuary. He makes an ephod. He installs his own priests. And in all these ways, this is what the narrator captures in verse 6. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The narrator is describing this is what life looks like when everyone does what's right in his own eyes. Blatant disregard for God's law and his word, doing whatever they think is right, setting up their own religion, their priesthood, their carved images, their ephod. The people did as they pleased. And notice, too, that the, the narrator says everyone did what was right in his eyes. So this is almost giving us a snapshot of what life would have been like. Right? It, it, 
regardless if it was Micah and his mother, life in, amongst the Israelites was like this. It was everyone doing what was right in their own eyes, worshiping God however they see fit, whoever God they might seem to, to want to worship. And the narrator is seemingly showing that the people of Israel are really no different than the surrounding nations. They're serving God in, in pagan ways and pagan forms. Um, and up to this point, we've seen some serious sins already committed. Stealing, dishonoring parents, making an idol, being dishonest in the vow of the silver, making a shrine, ordaining a false priesthood. And then it gets worse. Verse 7. Now there was a young man of Bethlehem in, Ju- in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem and in Judah, to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. Now, according to the book of Numbers, the Levites, who were God's ordained priests, did not have their own inheritance or their own land, per se. Their inheritance was God. That's what he commanded. They did, however, have 48 cities where they could stay and and, uh, live there. But Bethlehem was not one of those 48 cities. So it's kind of unclear what this Levite might have been doing in one of these towns because it was not a Levitical city. But he comes to the house of Micah, and Micah says, where did you come from? And he repeats, I'm a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah. I'm going to sojourn to find a place. And Micah says, stay with me and be to me a father. This would have been a term that was reserved for the priest, symbolizing reference and, or not reference, What's the word I'm looking for? Reverence. Thank you. Reverence and and respect. Be to me a father and a priest, and I will give you ten pieces of silver a year and a suit of clothes and your living. And the Levite went in. And the Levite was content to dwell with the man. And the young man became to him like one of his sons. And in this moment, the narrator is showing us that the priests have become corrupt. So the judges are corrupt, the people are corrupt, the priests are corrupt. They're showing blatant disregard for God's word. They're showing spiritual apostasy. <coughs> Verse 11 shows that the Levite was content to dwell with the man. It shows his spiritual ignorance and lack of understanding of what it meant to be a priest. They were not to be hired out or bought like bounty hunters. They were reserved to serve the Lord. The Levites were appointed by God to serve in the tabernacle, to lead the people to true worship. However, in this moment, the priest is serving in a false sanctuary to false gods, to an idol made of carved, engraved silver. See how corrupt this is, how the narrative is describing it. And Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest and was in the house of Micah. And then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. So in the midst of his rebellion, in the midst of his spiritual ignorance, he really believes, I've just got this great gift. I just got a Levite. This is it, right? I don't have to ordain one of my own sons. I mean, I've got the real deal here. I've got a Levite. Now I know the Lord's going to bless me. Shows how Micah is influenced again and affected by the pagan nations. His faith is almost superstitious. He believes that the Lord will bless him because he has a Levite, yet he's ignorant of the fact that every other part of his situation, the ephod, the sanctuary, the idol, is against God's word. 
He's missing the point. True worship and love for God and relationship with God must be practiced according to God's commands and his law and his word, not based on our own preferences and ideas or desires. And he has in the pagan religion the idea that if I do this, then God has to do this. That's, that's fundamentally pagan religion or, or world religion. I do this, God has to do this. I create something, some act, some person who will ensure God's blessing, some prosperity, some goodness. What Micah has essentially done with the Levite is just made him another idol. Because I have Micah, Micah says, because I have this Levite, I have the Lord's blessing. That he's, he's become an idol to him. So Micah, his mother, and the priest, the story of Judges 16, so is how hypocritical, how mixed, how twisted, and yet spiritually ignorant the people of Israel have become. All the while thinking that this will somehow obtain the Lord's favor, the Lord's prosperity. As I was thinking about this idea this week, I'm reminded of a friend that I have who hates Hawaiian pizza. (laughs) The idea of fruit on a pizza to him is repulsive. Like, you might not even call it pizza. So if I was trying to, maybe there's others of you who agree with that in here. So let's say that I, I wronged this friend, and I wanted to somehow get his favor, his blessing, his, his goodness towards me. And I think, I got it. I'm going to give him a Hawaiian pizza. That will ensure his favor, his, his love, this right relationship with him. That would make it worse, right? Wouldn't it? Like you heard a friend and you give him something that he hates. This is, this is what the Israelites are doing. In this, this is what Micah is doing. They're ignorant of how they are sinning and worshiping God in ways that he hates. Yet all the while, in their spiritual ignorance, they believe that because I have now the Levite as a priest, he is going to bless me. The Lord would bless me. This statement couldn't be more wrong. So when we take a look at Judges 17 as a whole, verses 1 through 13, we want to answer that first question. What does this story proclaim about God and his relationship with his people? And when we look at that question and seek to answer it, we see that God is really only spoken of in verses 2 and 3 and 13. So what do we learn from a story that is not, God is not necessarily directly involved here? Well, we can learn by that God is not involved here and what it shows. It shows us that apart from God's word, his spirit, and godly leadership, people will turn to idolatry, false worship. In the midst of pagan society, they will adopt their practice. They will be spiritually ignorant, rebellious against God, yet all the while, quote, knowing, as Micah says, that God will prosper them. The story does teach us, I believe, that God's people want prosperity from the Lord. But it's not necessarily a bad thing. The word prosper, yatav in Hebrew, means to go well with, to do good to, to be merry, glad, or joyful, having favorable circumstances. Right? Other translations will translate Judges 17, 13 as, now I know that the Lord will be good to me. Or now I know the Lord will bless me now. This is the same word that's translated in Genesis 13, 12, when Jacob repeats a promise of God that he voiced to him, where he says, you said, I will surely do you good. 
That's the word there, translated, good. And make your offspring as a sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So this is what, it seems like Micah deeply wants this goodness from the Lord. He wants this prosperity, this flourishing, this joy, this gladness, this fulfillment from God. But it shows all the while that he's ignorant, and there's great irony in Micah's mom as she names him who is like the Lord. She dedicates silver to the Lord, yet she makes an idol out of it. It shows the great irony of Micah as he makes shrines of gods and ephods and hires a priest to serve as idols and still confesses or believes that God will prosper him. The story shows us the people's need of deliverance from this hypocrisy, this spiritual ignorance, this idolatry, this unfaithfulness. It shows us the need of a, a true faithful priest who will usher in true worship and mediation between God and his people. It shows the people's great need for a king, as verses 6 showed us, who will bring spiritual direction and usher in God's righteousness based on his word. The story shows us that apart from a right understanding of God's character and his word, his people may believe that it's because of something they do that will bring prosperity and goodness from God. And when we look at Judges 17 as a whole, this, I swear, I believe presents a snapshot of what we see in the story of the Old Testament, as we seek to connect this story with a larger story of the Bible. Because all throughout the history of redemption of God's people, God has called his people, he saved his people, he's given commandments to his people so that they can live as he intended for their greatest joy and flourishing and for his glory. So that this was, and a lot of the commands you see all throughout the law are for the people's prosperity. You see this phrase repeated throughout the law, so it will go well with you. But all throughout the Old Testament, we see that the people, although they might want prosperity from God, they fail to obtain it again and again. Because of their unfaithfulness, their spiritual ignorance, their rebellion, they continually break God's command and his covenant. They turn from God to other created things, other idols, and, and worship God according to pagan practices and customs, not as in accord with his word. And often in these times, in these sinful ways, in the rebellion, they are ignorant of their rebellious condition. They are so lost, they don't even know it. And this story connects with the Bible's larger story in Meshes because it shows that apart from God's gracious intervention, no one is righteous. No one seeks God. No one is right before God. Everyone turns away. All humanity becomes worthless. No one does, does good. Humanity needs a new heart. Humanity needs a faithful priest. Humanity needs a faithful king who will rescue them from their peril and from their dangerous situation. And ultimately, this story shows us our great need for our great high priest, our great king, the true and faithful Israelite, Jesus Christ. <coughs> Jesus is the faithful priest and king who came to rescue his people from sin and slavery. He is the faithful high priest who offers a sacrifice once and for all on behalf of his people. Jesus is the better shrine, the better sanctuary, the new temple who fulfills the law and the prophets. He fulfills the Old Testament sacrificial system and, and is the only mediator between God and man. Jesus solves the problem in the book of Judges and the Old Testament as a whole of the people's faithfulness, their idolatry, their apostasy. Jesus came to take the place of sinners. He came to live the life that we were intended to live. 
in perfect submission and obedience to God and his laws, he never sinned. He didn't steal from his mother. He didn't disobey his parents. He did not lie. He did not worship false gods. He lived a life of perfect obedience to God, and he came to die, to give his life as a ransom for many, to rescue and redeem sinners. And he died on a Roman cross, taking the punishment for the people's sins, taking our punishment for sin, of of all of our unrighteousness, all of our idolatry, and he takes our punishment. He dies in our place. He takes away our unrighteousness in an act of simultaneously act on the cross. He takes away our unrighteousness and he imputes, he gives us his righteousness. Not by anything that we do, So that if anyone would believe in Jesus, they say, I know that the Lord will be good to me, that I have God, that I have in right relationship to me, not because I do this, not because I go to church or I read my Bible or I I don't, I avoid bad things. I don't see bad movies. I watch what I say. I know the Lord is with me only because of Christ, because of what he did on the cross. That's what imputed righteousness means. It comes to us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It shows that although we do not seek God and we don't do good, our works will never add up. God shows his great love for us that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. He rescues us and he saves us simply by his grace alone. So Judges 17 shows us our need for Jesus, how we need a new heart, we need a new priest, we need a faithful king. Shows us how it's fulfilled in Jesus. And now we want to seek what do we do with this story? What warning or exhortation does this story offer? What does this telling us not to do or to do? And I believe the story offers us a warning. That we cannot come to God on our own terms. That we cannot seek to worship God in an image that we create of him. That reflects our own personal preferences and conveniences. It shows that it is foolish and sinful to worship God in ways that we see fit that seem right in our own eyes. For you and I, the warning this morning is to examine our own idolatry and our hypocrisy. How our confessions and what we might say about God and our blessings of God do not really line up with our practice and how we worship God. We see that Micah's understanding of God reflected ignorance. His worship of God showed great sin and rebellion and hypocrisy, and his reasons for the Lord blessing him was misplaced and wrong. When we think about the warning in this passage, I think we would do well to reflect on our own spiritual ignorance. The story warns us in considering is what we believe about God based on our own thoughts, our ideas, our culture, our traditions, or is it informed by God's word shaped, directed by his scriptures, the Bible alone? Do we seek to create a God in our own image that we're more comfortable with, that looks like us, that talks like us, that doesn't contradict us? Right? Imagine seeking a spouse or a close friend or having these expectations. I'm looking for someone who will never argue with me, who will always think I'm right, who will never contradict me, Maybe just verbalizing that and processing, we might say, wow, I might even have that expectation. If your desire for relationship or friendship is based off what 
you can get out of it. In reality, you're not really looking for a friend or a spouse or a relationship, a person to love. Your motivation is not love, it's lust. Right? Love says, what can I do for you? Lust says, what can you do for me? So if I got angry at my wife when her actions didn't match up with my expectations, when the reality doesn't match with what I wanted her to do, if I believe about Stephanie, my wife, that she can never tell me I'm wrong, that she can never contradict me or make me uncomfortable, I don't really love her. I love myself. Similarly, if you say, well, I could never believe in a God who blank. The idea of God in the scriptures makes me uncomfortable because of blank. What you're really saying is, when my idea of God contradicts God's word in, in Revelation, I want to create an, an image, a reflection of God that I like. What you're saying is, my idea of God can never contradict God's revelation in his word, and that is falling to the same rebellion as we see with Micah. God is a speaking God who has chosen to reveal himself in the 66 inspired books of the scriptures. So let us align our thoughts, our ideas, our beliefs about God with the Bible. Amen? Amen. I think it would be also be good to reflect and upon the warning and the ignorance of Micah, in, in specifically in verse 13, in his false assurance of the Lord blessing him. Do we believe that the Lord will be good to us? Do you believe that? And why? I would argue that regardless of even belief in God, all of us, in a similar way to Micah, want prosperity. We want goodness. We want flourishing. We want happiness. We want wellness. A French philosopher by the name of Blaise Pascal, who's from the 1600s, said it like this. All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. So we have a, I think because of it's woven into the fabric of who we are, we have a desire for deep, longing Flourishing, happiness, joy, contentment, satisfaction, wellness. It's simply because we're created human. And we're created to worship and glorify God. So Micah voices a desire that the Lord will bless me because of blank. And although Micah believes in this, I think that the world teaches us that with this innate desire that we have, that we might see in Micah and that if you resonate with that quote from Blaise Pascal, that we can try to seek to obtain that. Two primary ways the world says you can obtain this prosperity, this happiness, this flourishing. Number one, you can look outward. We can, like Micah, look toward religion. We can look for a God who will bring prosperity because we do blank, right? Micah said, Lord will bring me prosperity because I have a Levite, I have a priest. We might say, because I'm going to obey or going to obtained to these food laws, or I'm going to pray this prayer every day. That might be the case towards religious activity. I know God will prosper me and bless me because I do blank. But others look outward not to religion, but to career advancement, success, jobs. Where the, the, the fundamental message, the, the gospel that might be believed there is, I know that 
my boss, this job, blank, will prosper me because I work hard. I'm going to achieve and, and do great things. Or we can look outward towards relationships, dating, relationships, marriage, kids. Right? I know that this relationship will bring me happiness when I get it because I obtain it. Because that's what I see in the movies. Our couples just seem so much happier than I am. We can look outward towards pleasures. We can become hedonistic. I know this sexual experience will bring me prosperity, goodness, joy, happiness, because it feels good. Or I know this hobby, this act, this whatever it is. This is the message of YOLO, of living for the moment. (laughs) (laughs) The problem with finding happiness and looking outward is that experiences come and go. Jobs come and go. Relationships come and go. And if our happiness is tied to something that's not necessarily in our control all the time, it's insecure. So when we lose a relationship or we lose our happiness or the sex doesn't fulfill like we wanted it to or the drug and the, the, whatever it is doesn't fulfill like it, it once promised or delivered, then we're left wanting. And we can try to find happiness by looking outward, but I believe, although you might find it for a moment, the foundation is insecure it's not firm, and it's not bringing satisfaction to the fullest. You say, well, don't look outward. Secondly, the world teaches us you can look inward, right? The second message of the world is you can find prosperity by looking within. I read a Psychology Today article this week that said this, happiness can only incur in a moment that you're in and can only be sustained by developing and nurturing a relationship with yourself. The ultimate source of happiness lies in the quality of your thoughts, Our thoughts are the most intimate relationship and will impact our lives far more than our relationship with others. In fact, our relationship with others are, in extent, but a reflection of the quality of our own thoughts. We may seek out there, but that's really icing on the cake. Genuine and sustainable happiness is derived from a healthy and nurturing relationship with yourself. Nothing and no one can take that from you. Devote your attention to your authentic well-being and happiness will emerge. Now, if you can explain that to me, I don't get it. It seems circular. You find happiness from within, and that's where happiness is found, from within. You love yourself. You think good thoughts. And and we see these cute and catchy phrases on coffee cups and dispersed on posters and and nice tweets. Social media just has a plethora of these messages. The problem with these messages is that oftentimes we can't even trust ourselves. We're messed up and sick. We don't know what we want. And when we get it, it doesn't bring the pleasure that we thought it would bring. The prophet Jeremiah says like this, who can understand the heart? It's desperately sick, deceitful above all things. It's exhausting to be your own happiness. It's ultimately a false hope. Like looking outward, it's not secure. It doesn't bring the deep longing that your heart really is looking for. And this, to me, is where the beauty and uniqueness of the gospel comes in because although the world might say you look outward or you look inward, the gospel says you look upward. The gospel teaches us to look up to Christ. The gospel teaches us that we were made by God and our hearts will not be satisfied until we have God. The revealed God of the scriptures, not a fabrication or image or of a God, an idol who exists to serve us, God himself. St. Augustine said that our hearts will be restless until they rest in thee, referring to God. 
The gospel teaches us that God, the all-creator, all-powerful, eternally happy God, created us to glorify him, created a world of flourishing with him. The Bible teaches that at the Father's right hand are pleasures forevermore. In his presence is fullness of joy, prosperity, well-being, happiness. But we all have rebelled against him. Although God created us to find happiness and flourishing in him, our greatest problem is that we have separated ourselves from God. We don't get God by doing things that we do. That longing of always wanting to get back there, we cannot get there on our own. Nothing will ever be good enough to bring us back to God. And when we look upward, we, we realize that God came downward. Not based on our worthiness, because we were good enough, because we were lovely. He came simply to make us lovely. He loves us because he loves us. He died for us and saves us by grace alone. He offers this satisfaction and joy and peace by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone. And in the gospel, we can say like Micah, I know the Lord will prosper me. But unlike Micah, we don't say because I have a Levite as a priest, because I'm a good person, because I've tried to be moral. We say because of Christ alone. I know the Lord has prospered me because of Christ. I know the Lord is prospering me because of Christ. I know the Lord will prosper me because of Christ and by his grace alone. That is the bedrock foundation that we can stand on and it's the most secure because it's founded in God. The unchanging, eternal God. We get this eternal prosperity and eternal joy because it comes from the eternal God. Nothing can change that. Nothing in ourselves, nothing around us can change that. Comes only from God. And Jesus brings us eternal prosperity because in Jesus, we get to be with God. Do you believe in this God? Is your understanding of this God shaped and informed by God's word? Do you believe in the rich and rewarding promises of God? Do you cling to those? Are you aware of the great things that God has promised in himself, in his word? Do you revel and reflect deeply on this message of goodness? Is, Is it saturating your hearts in such a way that your joy is increasingly overflowing and growing? In which the prosperities of this world, little trinkets and toys of this world, seem like nothing in compared to the supreme worth and value of having God as your well-being, your prosperity, your satisfaction, your joy. Is that transformation happening in your heart? So you would give yourself to God and his word, his promises and his grace, his leadership, and worship him more fully. Sadly, it believes like many of us, like Micah, can be deceived. And I think sin and Satan have a way of working together to deceive Christians. Primarily, number one, to keep them out of the word. How can you know God apart from his word? How can you know his promises apart from his word? How can your faith grow apart from his word? Paul says faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. We have that commitment to God's word. Satan and and the flesh and our sin work together to rob us of wanting to submit to godly leadership, of 
priests and pastors and leaders and elders who will shepherd us and care for us and look after our soul. They'll keep us away from God's people and isolated. Lastly, they, they deceive us and believe us is because of something that we do, which either leads us to become arrogant or feeling like we're never enough. I pray that we can learn from Judges 17 and see that we can confidently say that the Lord will prosper us, but it is only because of Christ. That this would lead to our great hope and flourishing and joy and well-being, and that the things of this world would slowly fade as we look to Christ and reflect upon his deep grace for us. So I ask that we would worship him now as we reflect through communion, as we sing songs to him. Let's pray.